I'm Torin. I'm 34. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of lose track after a while. You, you, gave so, me, you gave me your birth date, so I can't confirm yes. that. You were 34. <laughs> yes. So I'm located in Brazil for the past four and a half years now. I've been running a technology company down here. I worked for the longest time in consulting. After a while, I just said, hey, you know, that's it's really good. It's a good job. It's nice, but it's not one of what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then I quit my job and started a company. I've been running it for, as I said, the last four and a half years since 2013. And what's the name of your company and what does it do? The name of the company is Big Data Corp. And essentially what we do, well, the name is kind of self-explanatory. We work with big data, but <laughs> we we work at a very specific part of the whole big data ecosystem, which is the data capture and structuring side of things. So basically, whenever you're doing some kind of big data work, you want to do data analysis, you want to build a sophisticated model, or you know you want to develop some artificial intelligence stuff. The job starts with the data. You have to get your hands on very accurate, very well-behaving, well-defined, well-structured data to be able to train your models and develop whatever you want to develop on top of that. And that's often a challenge, right? People will go and say, hey, you know, there's, everybody says all, says all the time that there's all this information available all, all over the world. But then when they actually want to get their hands on the information that's available, they usually face a challenge. You know, how do I find information about people, about companies, about products, about whatever it is? And that's the problem that we're here to solve. We're here to help you get access to that kind of information so that you can develop uh, cool applications, models, whatever you want to build on top of information that we've gone out and captured and structured for you. Can you give us like a case example or case study, something simple that we could understand maybe a little bit more? And uh, like the company name, it's very, it makes a lot of sense. That Was it expensive to get that domain? Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. I was lucky enough to come up with the company name back in 2011 when almost no one was talking about big data. I actually managed to trademark the name here in Brazil, which is insane because I shouldn't really have been able to do that because <laughs> it's kind of an emerging technology. But I was able to do that and get the domain name and it, it cost me you know, next to nothing to do that. I kind of jumped ahead of the curve with that one. And it was interesting because if you look back at 2013, 2014, when we were like at the, the top of the hype of the whole big data hype where everyone was talking about it, it essentially drove a ton of organic traffic to us without us having to do really any actual advertising or any real work to get that, which drove a lot of sales for us. And that was really cool. It also attracted a lot of people who didn't have the least clue of what they were talking about, you know, but that's kind of par for the course. So I think I can give uh, a couple of really interesting examples uh, of different types of work that we do. So essentially, we divide our work into two, two types of things that we do. One is sell data that we've already captured and already structured, and that will usually drive decision-making processes for our clients. So we work with a bunch of companies in the financial sector, and they'll get our data, usually about companies and about people, to complement whatever kind of credit modeling risk scoring that they're doing internally. Because we capture a lot of data from the web, we have a lot of visibility about the presence that people leave on the web. We have a ton of complementary data that they wouldn't usually have access to 
and that really enriches the decision making process when they want to you know give credit to someone or they want to let someone open an account more easily or something like that to give you a for instance today we capture essentially all of the advertisements that people place on what would be kind of the local competitors to a Craigslist. Down here we have Mercado Livre and a bunch of other companies that compete in that space kind of online advertisement. So we capture all of that data and we tie it back to a person. So when you go to the bank and you ask for a credit card, they'll not only look at your credit history, but they can actually look, hey, have you been selling things online? What kinds of things have you been selling? Do you get income from that? Or what do the things that you're selling online tell me about you that I can take into account when letting you open your account and do that kind of work? So it's really providing alternative data points for these companies. For example, so a bank has employed you all to look at past history of like creditors? Yes, 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 things like that. But really, Can you give us another example too of, of a different type of business? Yeah, so the, the different type of business is something that we've done with a lot of startups, which is essentially collecting data to enable some new AI applications. And let's say you wanted to build build an AI bot that was able to analyze news that were posted online and try to figure out trends about a particular sector or a particular company or something like that. But you don't want to have to go to the trouble of actually collecting all of the news. So we can provide you with a data set of all of the news items that are published, along with blog postings, along with whatever the comments are posted on those news items, all of that stuff. How about like Facebook or something like that? Can you even dig into Facebook or no? Is that too hard? No, it's not that it is too hard. It's just that there are, some, that there are several limitations in the sense of what you can actually do with social network data. So but a lot of the social network data is blocked for privacy reasons. And our data capture process is really, really well behaved. We only go out and capture stuff that do not require any kind of login or anything like that. We restrict ourselves to public information. Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't know if, if there's ways of mining that information without going against privacy and that you're fined or, or what. Depending on the use case, there might be. It's When we talk about social media, it's really on a case-by-case -case basis. We've done a bunch of work, for instance, in the past with the with Twitter, which is a lot has a lot more public data than Facebook does. We did a bunch of work with their APIs and leveraging their data to find people who liked particular sports teams here in the country. You know, soccer is, is the big sport here in Brazil, and we we're trying to find who were the fans of particular sport teams. And the way that we did that was by tying the data that the client had back to Twitter data that we managed to match back to, to individuals and figuring out who they were following, if they were following players on that team or if they were following the official team account, they were engaging with it and then just kind of figuring out who was, you know, who liked each team. And that would drive marketing. Hopefully the listeners understand you're coming to us from Brazil today, right? Yes. The connection is pretty good, but it sometimes slows up a little bit. So we'll, we'll just do our best to work with it. When I was recording a podcast the last time, the power had just gone out like, you know, 15 minutes before the start time, the power had gone out and I was running around trying to find a place where I could actually connect. <laughs> and then like two minutes before the interview started, the power comes back on. I'm like, oh man, 
Do you have to work with that a lot being in uh, Brazil? Can you tell us about working there? Yeah, so power outages aren't really that common because we're located in Rio de Janeiro, which is like the second largest city in the country. So we don't really have kind of power outages or anything like that. It's, It's not as common, but we do have to deal with very bad connectivity infrastructure. So, for instance, we have three different internet service providers in the office because they would just randomly go out from time to time and you just have to switch to another one and hope that the other one is working. So we have one provider that gives us a fiber connection. We have another one which is kind of a regular cable connection. And then we have another one which is a regular residential provider that we installed in the office, you know, just as an emergency backup. And that's kind of the things that you have to deal with by being here. You're from Brazil and born and raised there in Rio de Janeiro? Yes. So I was born and raised here in Rio. I I did my entire college education down here. And when I opened the, the company, I, I opened it up here as well. What did the people there actually think about hosting the Olympics and hosting the World Cup? Because I don't think I, I got some coverage, but yes. I want to hear from someone who lives there. Right. So it was actually an interesting period also from a business perspective, right? Because there were a lot of business opportunities surrounding the first the World Cup and then the Olympics. I think the World Cup in particular, we were at a better economic point in the country as a whole, as opposed to the past two years or so. Brazil has been in a deep recession. The year of the Olympics specifically wasn't a really good year in terms of business. For the city and for the country, it was really, we were really proud to host the events. We were really proud that, you know, everything worked and people liked the event and so on. It's it's just, it's sad to see that a lot of the things that were built for the Olympics and for the World Cup have gone into disrepair and haven't really been taken care of afterwards. But that's that's really not a problem that's exclusive to us. I mean, a lot of the, the cities that have hosted these large events have gone through this. The only one to actually even make a profit on the Olympics was back in like 72, and it was Los Angeles, only because they already had the infrastructure built where... yeah where your country might be able to, instead of using those funds for the one-time event? Yeah, yeah. But there, there, are, there are things that, that we know that only got out, you know, that only got built because we were hosting the events. So there was a big expansion of the subway lines in the city, big expansion of uh, express bus lanes. A lot of the transportation infrastructure that's been maintained afterwards, it's really helped the city. And that's like a, a really bright side. doesn't get really talked about a lot. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to actually talk to you, or at least hear your perspective, you know, because we hear so much from the news here in the U.S. Yeah. Sometimes they don't want to cover anything about the negatives, and then I'm like, I don't know what's true or what's not true. I'm looking at plans and pricing. I guess it totally depends on each client. Yeah, so we basically, uh, our our commercial model, we try to build it, we try to, to design it to be as simple as possible. We'll essentially charge the client based on how much data we're sending to them, not in in bytes, but in, in sort of number of records that we're sending them. So, you know, if you want information on a thousand products, it's going to be cheaper than if you want information on a million products. Mm-hmm. But, and then the other thing that we take into account when we're, we're building the pricing is figuring out how many different pieces of information about a particular person or company or product or whatever it is you want to you, you want to receive. So if, if you want if you only wanted to get back the product names, 
it would be cheaper than if you want to get back the names and the prices and the descriptions and whatever else is associated with it. Say if I was trying to build a podcast audience up and I'm okay. trying to look for the podcast listeners, right. I come to you, yeah. like, would you tell me that you need something from me in order to try to find, the, I don't know, either their email addresses or something to let them know that I'm doing a podcast? We could essentially go about it in two different ways. The first one is you tell us, hey, you need, I, I want to find people who like to listen to podcasts. And I would probably ask you the subject of the podcast because that has to be taken into account, right? right. I don't want to give you an audience that only listens to sport podcasts. Let's say business ones. Yeah. Okay. So we would take that into account and we would run filter on the data that we've already captured to see how many people we would be able to to find that fits into the profile that you want. Because we, we might find a lot of people, but they might not be from a region that you're interested on and so on. So we'll give you some metrics back on the type of audience that we were able to find for you. And then based on that, you'd say, okay, so you found, let's say I found a million people that like to listen to business podcasts. You say, hey, you know, a million is too much for me. Give me a thousand people and I'm going to try to reach out to those guys. I would essentially send you back the email addresses or the phone numbers or whatever you ask for of those thousand thousand guys so that you could somehow reach out to them and promote your business or promote your podcast. Do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> I'm talking about my podcast. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's because I'm exactly. just curious. I think yeah, it's a good, so, a good example. Just no, to... it's an excellent example because that's something that we actually do for a lot of small businesses. We actually got a client, I think it was about a month back, this is probably one of the smallest ones that we've ever had. It's like a, a beauty place that does massages and they're located in the same office park where we are. I didn't even know they existed, but the guy found us online and he saw that our address was like in the same place where he was. So he just came up to our door and knocked on the door and asked to talk to me. So, you know, I spoke to him a little bit and he was essentially trying to find people who worked here in the same office park as we do that would be interested in the, the beauty treatments that his place offers. And we were able to find an audience for him and give him the details of this audience so that he could reach out to them either through direct email marketing or through Facebook campaigns or whatever kind of advertisement method you want to use. We can actually provide you with a segmented population that, that, that you can reach out to. And so in terms of pricing, let's say you wanted the email address of these thousand example people that, that, that I told you about. So we will charge you eight cents of our currency. And then, you know, in dollar terms, you, you divide that by about 3.2 or something like that. So it would run you about three cents. No, two. Yeah, three cents. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, three, two. Yeah, I'm looking at, I'm using the Google calculator. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so per person, it's not too expensive, right? It allows people who are starting off to kind of get off the, the ground floor by leveraging a little bit of data to, to reach a target audience or to use in their processes. How about we just jump into, instead of the details of your business, what you've learned in like creating a business, you know, the ups and downs, what's been the hardest part of doing your own business? It's a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. A lot of people that are opening their own businesses, they think, you know, it's like it's going to be a short run, a year, maybe two, and then I'll be making money and life will be good and I'll be my own boss and, and things like that. And the reality is that it takes a lot longer than that. 
it'll usually be like three to five years on average before you're actually making money with your company. For the longest time, I was actually the worst paid employee in the company, right? I was essentially using our revenues to hire new people and put the right pieces into place so that we could develop the company and so that the company could grow. You have to be aware of that when you're jumping into opening a company because it's it, it's not going to be easy. A lot of people don't realize that. They, they think that they really, and even if you tell them that over and over, and I have a bunch of friends that opened companies after I did, and they came to me for advice and I tried talking to them. And it didn't matter how, how many times I told them, hey, you know, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a while. A lot of people don't realize that. So that's kind of the first point I'd like to mention. You know, realize that it's going to be a marathon. It's going to be a long distance run and not a short distance run. And prepare yourself for that. You know, discuss it with, if you have a wife, discuss it with your wife. If you depend on your family, discuss it with your family because they'll be involved in the process as well. It's going to get to a point where the only thing that you talk about is the company and is the business. And they have to be aware of that and they have to be okay with that. Otherwise, those relationships are just not going to last. And how many employees do you have today and what's your revenues look like? Today, we are at... 37 employees. Last year, we had revenues of a little bit over 10 million reais, which is, again, our local currency that would add up to about three, three point something million dollars in revenues. Yeah, so, so that, that's kind of the point we're at. And for me in particular, it gets a little bit, it's a little bit scary, right? Because when I started this, it was just me and a friend and we were working out of our, out of our homes and now there's like 37 people depending on and growing depending on me. So it's a big responsibility. Why don't we just touch on how many team members you have and how you were able to do that? Right. So today we are at about 37 people, actually, because we've just hired a couple of people more, which is always funny to me because these days I spend a lot more time outside the office than I do in the office. And every once in a while, I'll get to the office and I'll see that there's someone there that doesn't actually know me, even though I founded the company. And I'll just look at them and they'll look at me and say, who are you? And I was like, hey, no, nice to meet you. I'm the guy who started this, which is an interesting part of growing. But I heard it said once that having a successful startup is kind of letting go of your emotional attachments to your physical space, to your physical location, right? Because you're just, the team grows so fast that you have to change offices every six months, every year or so. That's kind of the process that we went through. I mean, as, as we said, I started working at home. So when I started the company, it was just me and a friend and we were basically working from home. So. I had a little space set aside on, in my house where I could just sit down and, and, and get some work done. He had the same thing over on his place. And we'd essentially stay on Skype all day long talking to each other and doing the kind of development work. As the company grew and as we, we started getting some clients, we started seeing that, hey, you know, now we have some, some money coming in. Maybe we should look at an office space so that we could sit down together and have a, a proper space and so on. So we moved uh, to our first very, very tiny, very small office. And how big was that and how much would that cost? So here, the space was about, I don't know, it would be about 30 square meters. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's tiny. It's a tiny place. Okay. And that ran us 
somewhere around 2,000 AIs at the time. At the time, it would add up to about 800 or, yeah, just about $800 or so. So we're just talking 100 square feet, like basically like an office? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It, it costs 800 bucks? Yes. U.S.? U.S. Oh, US. wow. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, rents, especially in the city where we're located, which is Rio de Janeiro, rents were a little bit crazy, especially because we were starting the company right before the World Cup and right before the Olympics Yeah. when real estate was at a premium. So prices were insane. Yeah, it sounds like it, especially for, yeah, I would never have thought it'd be that expensive. That's why I was curious. When you're in a different country, we have no idea in pricing and everything. So. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it, it was actually, looking back at it, it was actually pretty expensive. And then maybe, I don't know, six or eight months later, we moved to a space that was a little bit bigger. It was 50 square meters, almost twice the size. There was a little bit of an increase in price. We're paying about 1200 USD for that space. And, and so w when we got to that space that was a little bit bigger, we, we actually sat down and tried to design a space that would give us some room to grow. So we figure out a, a layout that would give us enough space to get to 16 people. Mm -hmm. And because of the prices of rent and things like that, we ended up staying in that space until we had 20 people in it. And it was a mess because you essentially couldn't talk on the phone without at least three other people participating on the call just because everyone was just so packed together. It got to a point where it was unsustainable and then we had to move again. And this was last year. We moved to a space that was about three times the size of that. So we're now at a space that's about 150 square meters. Interestingly enough, we are paying proportionally a lot less rent per square meter than we were before. So now we're paying about 2000 USD in rent. So, you know, you have to let go of the space. And one of the things that we learned as well is that you have to be really, really careful with the hiring process, especially when you're starting out. And I mean, this obviously gets said a lot, but it's really important once you, once you start hiring people that you pay attention. And for me in particular, you should pay more attention to the cultural fit than the technical skills. I see a lot of companies that where they have the whole technical side of hiring figured out. They have tests, they have questions in the interview, they have all of this stuff that they do in order to assess the technical skills of, of the candidate. And we used to have a lot of that as well. But then you wouldn't really do a, an in-depth assessment of the cultural fit of the person that you were bringing on with the rest of the team and with the company as a whole. And then a lot of times what happened was that, you know, one, two, three months down the road, that person would quit or we'd have to fire them because they just weren't working out. And there's an intangible cost that's really, really high. So there was a lot of reworking and learning in the whole hiring process to make sure that we could get not only, you know, grow the team, but grow the team with very high quality, committed people that are really dedicated to the company, that really enjoy working, doing the work that we do every day and working in the company. And that, that was really important. That, that was a process. That, that wasn't something that we really knew from day one. We do have some people with us that have been with us practically since the start, but we have a lot of other people that we had to let go along the way. Can you give us like some examples of non-cultural fit and what you had to do to get rid of them? So there's like some very interesting examples, not only of the lack of cultural fit, but also of other factors that sometimes you don't really think about. So first on the cultural fit. So there was a, a few guys that we hired 
that technically they were really, really good, but their goal in life wasn't really to, you know, work for a company, any company really. They had the idea of being more like freelancers and, you know, making some money and then traveling the world a little bit and then coming back. And they were technically, they were really good and they helped us get some things out the door. But at the end of the day, when we need it, hey, we need you here for a long time or we need you to be a little bit more dedicated. They weren't really willing to give up on everything else that they were doing with their lives and spend a little bit more time in the company. And a lot of times when you're starting off, that's kind of the commitment that you need. So that was a challenge. We had some challenges with people that didn't fit in terms of the technology that we used. So they were like constantly questioning the technological decisions and it became kind of like fight. Every time they had to discuss anything, it became a fight. So a lot of these things are, are really subtle, right? And then there are the, the kind of non-technical, non-work life things that sometimes you don't really understand they have an impact. For instance, once we hired a guy, that lived very, very far away from the office. What happened at the end of the day was that it took him, I don't know, something like four or five hours just to get to the office and back home. Oh, wow. And then once you added that up with all of the other activities that he had and the work that he had to do, there just weren't enough hours in the day. And so he came to us and said, you know, it, it was great. I love the place, but it's just not going to work out because neither him nor us, we didn't figure out the thing that just by living so far away, just because of traffic and other things, it's not going to work out. Those kinds of things are, are something that you kind of figure out along the way, I guess. Yeah, I think that's good because, yeah, again, those type of things you don't think about, you're just worried about. Kind of trying to figure out, make sure the business works out, right? So, yeah. Well, I, exactly. Well, you're talking about fights over, you know, maybe how to mine data. Is that what you're talking about when you're talking about like technical stuff? And can you, I know we briefly touched on it. Yeah. I guess maybe a little bit more in detail. What would those fights be about? <laughs> yeah. So, man, just a bunch of things, really. Everything from overall systems architecture to particular technologies, programming languages, development tools that we were using. Oh, by the way, you said languages are yelling at each other in Spanish or you doing English <laughs> or what? No. So, well, we actually did have for a while a French guy on the team, which was really interesting because he was finishing his university in France and they have to do essentially, I think it's a semester or eight months or something like that of work abroad. And he didn't want to go to other European countries. He, he wanted to come to Brazil. So he sent me an email and I said, hey, are you guys hiring? Uh, and we ended up hiring him and it was really interesting because we had to talk to him in French or English or, and it was an interesting process. No, but what I meant about languages is really development languages. So, you know, it was a joke. It was a joke. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. No, but sometimes it would be good to yell at each other in different languages. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, I guess about my, the, the data mining language. So yeah. We yes. About yes. So we opted for, we made a couple of technological choices, which aren't kind of the first thing that come to mind when people are working the kind of problems that we work with. And so not a lot of the times, but some of the guys that we hired, as I mentioned, didn't really get why we were doing the things that the way that we were doing. And at the end of the day, the reason why we chose the technologies that we did is that we tested everything else that was out there. And we chose the technology that, that worked best for the, the scale and the type we were trying to do. But, you know, someone's coming in fresh 
off the market or fresh off university, and they've seen a bunch of stuff that's completely different from what we're doing, some people, instead of trying to understand why you took the road you took, would just start questioning it and complaining about it and, and fighting with you about okay, it. Okay, I'll say that's the number one thing that is annoying as hell, especially if you're going to be a boss, is that if you have people coming to you complaining about it, it is annoying. Okay, I have no problem if someone's working for me and they want to come up and not just complain about it, but hey, here's my solution instead. Instead of yeah. just whining, 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 whining. Yes. You know, because then you're like, you don't have enough time. There's only so much energy and time in the day. Well, hey, I'm more than happy to switch over to something else if you can find the, the best way to do it and why, you know. Exactly. So I am a firm believer in a culture of conflict. We try to practice a culture of conflict of ideas as much as we can. So, you know, have everyone question what we're doing and trying to figure out better ways to do what we're doing, trying to figure out better ways to arrive at solutions to the problems that we face and, you know, rework things and redo things and rebuild things. And I think that's that's really important and that's really healthy. But there's a very fine line between delivering constructive criticism and coming up with alternative solutions and just criticizing what's being done, right? And that's a very cultural thing because we've seen, especially some younger guys, they don't have the tact to do constructive criticism. So that was a challenge a lot of times. That, that was some of the cultural challenges that we faced. Yeah, no, I, I believe you on that. Unfortunately, I see that a lot more. Now I feel like an old dude. I'm 31. And when I say it, sometimes it's just like the younger <laughs> generations, like, you know, when they're stop complaining, they think they can just complain about everything. And then it's just like, yeah. hey, you need to just come with a solution. Like, especially if, if your technology that you're using, let's just say it was a little bit older, but it gets you done the right way. That's all that matters, right? I mean, I don't know exactly what the details are, but yeah, I think it's always smart to look at ways that you can make things better. But just um, always complaining about it and not doing anything about it, then that's, that's not any good. Exactly. So I have, I don't know, at the beginning of the year, one of the product managers said, hey, you know, I just want to take this product and I want to throw it out the window and I want to rewrite it entirely because I think we can use new architecture, we can use new software stuff, we can do a bunch of whole new stuff here and make it much better, much, much faster and everything else. And I, I've kind of figured out, I say, hey, you know, that's great. Come up with a plan, figure out the schedule for when you're, you're getting this thing done, figure out a schedule for when you're migrating the clients from the old version of the product to the new one. Know that you're going to have to support the old version for as long as there are clients on it. But you know, if you migrate everyone, then you can throw it out the window. And he came up with the plan and, and he worked on it and he delivered what he promised. So you know, that's kind of the good conflict. So I have no problem with that. I have no problem with someone coming up and saying, hey, you know, this is not good at all. We need to rewrite it and we need to rebuild it because of this and this and that. And you know, I'm going to work with it and it's going to get better. I'm fine with it, but don't just come up with me saying, hey, oh, this, this is terrible. This doesn't work. I have no solution. I have no alternative, but you know, I just know that this doesn't work. Then it's just useless criticism. Yeah. And if anyone's listening there, they're not a quote unquote entrepreneur yet, but you're on the way if you're listening to a podcast like this. Let's say you still have a job through a company. I mean, those are the first steps to becoming an entrepreneur always is just find something, try to make it better, bring it over to your boss, say, hey, I came up with this idea. This is why and why versus if, it, if we're just going to complain about everything, then it's not going to get anything done. 
Exactly. And I think it's a good way to measure the quality of the boss that you have in the company where, oh, yeah, for where sure. you're at. So if you come up with a good solution to something and you bring it up to whoever's, you know, your boss or, or on top of you in the hierarchy or something like that, and they just take your solution and they toss it aside and they give you no reason for it, then you're probably in the wrong place and you need to figure out a change. For sure. And definitely agree with that because that's going to find out if there are open all the all the people that do is be open and if they're not if they're just going to say no we're going to always keep doing it the way we do it then eventually they're going to be out of business anyway so exactly well exactly. I, yeah i appreciate you doing the set re-recording the second half of this interview we had to do that because before <laughs> right the people started coming in and i think i was starting to hear the crowd come in again so i don't want to lose our uh internet or get too much background noise yeah, here again love it. and uh so how about in closing if you don't mind just tell us yep. about anything else that you want the entrepreneurs who are listening any pieces of advice you have and, and just elaborate a little bit more on that? A few good pieces of advice. And I think a lot of them get said a lot, but don't are never followed enough. So the first one is to understand that entrepreneurship and starting your own business is a long-term thing. It's a marathon. It's, it's not a sprint. You're not going to make a ton of money overnight. You're not going to be an overnight hit that you're going to have a billion investors coming over to you and pouring money into your company. It's going to take time. By time, I mean usually you know three years, five years, something like that. I talk to a lot of people who come up to me these days and say, you know, you started the company. I'm thinking of starting my own business. And I figured that by six months or so, I'll be making enough money to pay myself. I'll kind of be in the good life. And that's just not going to happen. And I keep telling people, you know, that's not how it's going to happen. You're going to have to toil at it for three years, four years, five years before you actually work out the best business model, before you work out the best product, before you work out a, a ton of things that you need to actually get the business going. And I started the business back in 2013, so about four and a half years ago, but I was actually indirectly working on the ideas for a long time before that. I mean, a lot of what we do in the business today comes from work that I did when I was back getting my master's and that was back in 2008. So it's almost 10 years ago that I started. So you're old is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that. Yeah, I shouldn't mention dates so much, you know, because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it takes a while for ideas to mature and for, for you to figure out the concept of your business. And a lot of people talk about figuring out what you do and what your business is going to do. I can, I can simply say that it took me a long time to be able to summarize what we do. So I always joke that it took me about two years to be able to explain in two minutes what we do in the company. So it, it takes some time, you know, figuring out what you do is, is a process and not something that comes right off the bat. So, and you have to be prepared for that because otherwise it's just going to end in frustration. Your wife is going to be intimately involved in the process of entrepreneurship with you because she's going to be living the day-to-day -day of it with you. And you have to talk to her. You have to discuss things with her. If you still live with your parents, it's the same thing. They are going to be living that process with you if you live with your friends or it doesn't matter, or you know, whoever it is. You have to be very open. You have to really talk to them and, and, and talk them through the process because you're going to live it and you're going to live it very intensely and you're going to live it for a long time. So you have to be really prepared for that. So that's it. Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying all of our episodes. If you are, then consider subscribing to our weekly podcasts. 
Just search for Millionaire Interviews in your podcast player. And be sure to look for the Chuck Norris album artwork. Thanks again for tuning in. Sorry, I can tell, I, I guess at 9.30 every time when your internet starts going bad. So I, guess, <laughs> I, I don't want to go too much longer. Right. I think that if that's okay, that's a good stopping point, unless there's any other points you want to make so we can end, end on a good note without a bad connection. Okay. <laughs> so I think the last point is to be prepared for randomness, right? So a lot of what makes a business successful it's there's obviously a ton of hard work and a ton of things that you have to do, but a lot of what makes the business successful is outside of your control. You need to not only have a good product, but you need to have the right timing. And timing is a lot of what constitutes timing. It is outside of your control. Sometimes making the right connection with someone who's going to buy your product is something that happens by accident. So don't put yourself down too much if something doesn't work out. Try the things that were within your control and how much of that was because of things that were outside of your proof and the things that you can actually control. Don't worry about the ones that are, that are outside because otherwise you're just going to go crazy. All right. Well, Thorne, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you sharing your story and throw all your information in the show notes. What's the best way for someone to reach you if they want to say thanks? So the best way to reach me is usually via email. So I believe my contact email will be in the notes, but anyway, it's pretty easy. Storn, T-H-O-R-A-N at bigdatacorp.com.br. You can reach me through there. It's probably the, the easiest way to get me to reply, but I'm also on LinkedIn and all the social medias. Cool. All right. Well, we'll throw this in the show notes. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you.